Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Well, what, you know, what's interesting about, you know, the story that I tell in the book that I wrote is this transition of, um, you know, this professional me, but we'll talk about it in third person, right? This professional that goes from, living the MBA dream, living the business dream of hard driving success, you know, even to the extent of, you know, a hostile takeover and um, running a turnaround, needing to rejigger an organization, including firing people and all stuff and just success, success, success. And shareholder value is the only thing that matters. And, um, and running businesses that way. And this, and the book is this transition of like me going away and really questioning a lot of that both for myself and for others mm -hmm. um, and reconnecting with things that matters and asking, you know, basic questions, you know, the old saw, but are you working to live or you're living to work? Um, and um, all of that are things that I explore while away. And I continue to explore today. And I do think that um, paradoxically in my own life, by changing my way of being in the world, I've actually been able to achieve more and succeed more yeah. in a way that's kind of surprising to me and I think will be surprising to your audience. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Ben, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually was uh, introduced to you by way of your publisher who told me about your new book, which we will talk about. Um, but what really got my attention was the fact that you are a high-up executive at Take-Two Interactive, and uh, which published Grand Theft Auto, a game that I have played for endless hours and wasted copious amounts of time on and made absolutely no progress on, which I'm sure is, is probably a very common story for anybody who's played it. But before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on your life and the choices that you've made with your career? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't get that often. I, you know, I didn't, first of all, my high school class was really small. There were 40 kids in it. Um, and, um, so there wasn't kind of a ton of groupings other than we were the, you know, there weren't a lot of subsections that were possible for that. Um, but you know, I was kind of in a group that was, you know, fairly high achieving for what, um, uh, that small high school in Montreal, um, had, and, you know, I was president of the student council and, um, you know, on what the equivalent of college bowl and all of that. Um, but I wouldn't say that any of that really, um, uh, impacted kind of the, the decisions that I made or the path that I took in a way because, you know, my high school class, I was the only one that left Canada to come to school in the United States. I went to Columbia and, um, 
you know, everybody else kind of eventually will just follow their own paths and have their own lives. Um, every now and then throughout my career, I've always looked back and I think back at where I grew up and I was like, wow, I've come, you know, the distance that I've traveled, not just in space and in time, but just in terms of life experience. And, um, it's been, I, I'm, I'm often marvel at it. Um, and, but you know, the experience that I had in high school growing up in Montreal, I think is so vastly different than the experience that I see my kids having in school in the United States and in New York, you know, everything seems so competitive and pressured here, but all the kids want to get into a good school and it's all about college and it's all about, you know, performance. I didn't have any of that when I grew up. I was just, I had a, what I think of just kind of this normal childhood of, um, you know, some combination of work and play and, um, indoors and outdoors and not a lot of screen distraction, but that everybody has today. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, I think of, I think of it as a, um, almost, uh, you know, an ideal, um, childhood. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, in that way, I don't, I don't think it really informed my decisions going forward. I mean, I think what really changed my life trajectory was college rather than high school. Sure. Um, and, um, I think, I, I don't think that's unusual. Yeah. But I think that's kind of the way I think about it. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. I've had a handful of people here who went to really, really small high schools. Uh, and one of the questions that always comes up is what did uh, having such a, a sort of small group of people that you're around in a school, which for most people is typically hundreds of people, have on your impact uh, or ha- have on your you know ability to navigate social relationships? Like, what did it teach you about that? Oh gosh, <laughs> I don't know. I gotta say, I kind of feel like the thing that taught me the most about social relationships, if you want to go all the way back there, sure. is um, you know my mother is a shrink, uh-huh. and um, um, and so you know I I grew up with kind of delving into all sorts of emotions and thought processes that most um, most kids don't grow up with. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, that more than anything has. Um, really taught me about human empathy uh, and human emotions. Even today still, I have a deep curiosity about other people's lives. And I have a deep curiosity about what's going on inside of the people's heads, um, emotionally, intellectually. And I have a deep curiosity about what's going on in my own head. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of my journey has to do with that, of trying to sort out both the inner monologue and, what's, what, and, and um, finding peace with that as well as really understanding what it is that makes us all tick, what it is that makes me tick, what it makes other people tick. And um, to this day, I kind of, I'll I'll sit as a manager, I'll sit with people who either I'm mentoring or somehow have a business relationship with. And I'm really curious about the voice inside their heads, about what it's telling them and and how to conquer it. Because a lot of this stuff needs to be conquered. In some ways, it's this, you know, this ongoing commentary, like the Super Bowl commentary of just like what's going on in your life. There's like this voice that's just kind of commenting on your life. Mm -hmm. The other day, I was kind of walking down the street somewhere. There was nobody on the street. And then somebody behind me, I heard him say something. I heard somebody sort of say, God, you're so stupid. And I turned around and it was just him thinking he was alone talking to himself because something was going on in his head. It just kind of came out of his mouth because, you know, this this stream of self-criticism that everybody seems to have just kind of popped out because he thought he was alone. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so I kind of have a real interest in all of that. I, and uh, I, I credit a lot of that to um, my mother, who um, always had an interest in um, in human welfare and emotional welfare and mental and, and mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- 
a couple of questions come from that. Uh, you know, I think this to me is, is one of the sort of fundamental things that is actually missing from our education system because it's so essential to navigating the complexities of being an adult. And yet we teach nothing about it when we're, you know, we're not taught very much about it when we're younger, which is really strange to me. Um, so did you feel that because of that experience, you were equipped to navigate adult life better than other people would be? And also, uh, having had a mother who's a shrink and having been exposed to these ideas, what impact has had on has that had on you as a parent? Well, first of all, I tell everybody, you know, being this being the child of a shrink is like is guaranteed to screw you up for life. So, um, <laughs> so that's all all of that. All of that is true. But I would say, you know, having that exposure um, uh, you know, I don't think it gives me advantage or disadvantage. I do have um, a unique ability, I think, to an interest in understanding what's going on inside um, people's emotional lives. And I totally agree with you that we spend a lot of time in this country for kids and for adults focused on physical fitness and almost nothing on mental fitness. And if anybody kind of is at all curious about the mind-body connection, you have to spend, even if you are only curious about physical fitness, you have to spend time on mental fitness because the, the brain and the mind is so closely, so closely regulate um, our physical fitness that we need to spend time on it. And I agree, nobody has, no, we're not taught the skills, we don't know the skills, and even the skills that we think we know because, you know, everybody thinks they know best. They don't really kind of, they're not research-based, they're not scientifically-based. And even, you know, classical psychology is, you know, you know, based on Freud and all this stuff. It's based on theories. It's not based on data. Lately, things have been based on data. And we've learned a lot about how the mind works and how the brain works. And unless you're curious about it later in life and, and either teach yourself or go to somebody who will read about it yourself or somehow, you know, you don't, you don't really have the skills. And I think those skills are important not just for uh, for individual well-being, but for communal well-being or corporate well-being or, or any of any of all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I do think, from my vantage point, it feels like a bit of a ground groundswell coming up in the corporate world. Um, but it's probably not. I probably kind of see it because I'm in this world now. But this this world of well-being, of mental well-being, in addition to or, or the well-being of the mind and the brain, in addition to physical well-being, is becoming a topic. It's becoming a hot topic, and deservedly so, because to date, as you say, we've spent no time focused on it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to you know probably a half a dozen happiness researchers here, all of who say this is actually one of the greatest predictors of your long-term success and well-being. Well, what you know, what's interesting about you know the story that I tell in the book that I wrote is this transition of. Um, you know, this professional me, but we'll talk about it in third person, right? This professional that goes from living the MBA dream, living the business dream of hard driving success, you know, even to the extent of, you know, a hostile takeover and um, running a turnaround, needing to rejigger an organization, including firing people and all stuff and just success, success, success. And shareholder value is the only thing that matters. And, um, and running businesses that way. And this and the book is this transition of like me going away and really questioning a lot of that, both for myself and for others, mm-hmm. um, and reconnecting with things that matters and asking, you know, basic questions, you know, the old saw about are you working to live or you're living to work. Um, and um, all of that are things that I explore 
wall away. And I continue to explore today. And I do think that um, paradoxically in my own life, by changing my way of being in the world, I've actually been able to achieve more and succeed more yeah. in a way that's kind of surprising to me and I think will be surprising to your audience. Well, you know, I think it's an interesting paradox at play because you know the very things that you abandoned were the things that allowed you to be so successful in the first place. Um, yes, there are any number of paradoxes and ironies in my life and in the book. Um, and, you know, one could say, well, you know, let's see how it all turns out. Nobody really knows at the end of the day. Yeah. And everybody's everybody's life takes twists and turns. Um, most of them are unexpected. And how we respond to them is kind of a key measure of success, too. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it's also not lost on me that as you grow older, you're, the skills that you need to apply and the person you are changes, right? What, mm-hmm. what you need to do to succeed in the world when you're 25 is different than when you're 45 or 55. Yeah. And who you are emotionally is very different when you're 25 or 45 or 55. And so all of that needs to be taken into account when we think not only about business success, but about life success. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you know, so in a way I kind of went through a, tradition, a, a transition, Yeah. but you could argue that all I did was get older. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how did each period, uh, of your life, like the before and after, how did your parenting change? Um, I learned a lot about, um, how I wanted to be in this world by taking time off. I learned a lot about making deliberate choices in our lives and I learned a lot how to apply different ways of thinking about our lives to be, um, to live a better life, right? So different mindsets. There's a Stanford psychologist and professor called, um, Carol Dweck Mm -hmm. wrote a book called mindset, which you may know of. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and what, and, and that book really spoke to me about, you know, how we approach the world changes about how we are in the world and our and our sense of either growth or stagnancy. So her view of kind of you know, this fixed mindset about just having to succeed as opposed to a growth mindset, which is kind of let's learn. Let's not be the smartest person in the world. Let's be the best learner in the in the world. And um, and that mindset is something that I really explored in my transition away, and it's changed the way I give advice to my children. And that little voice inside their head, inside everybody's head that says, you know, I can't, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not fast enough, I'm not whatever enough, is just a voice inside your head. It's just a thought that doesn't need to believe, mm-hmm. to be believed. And you can, in your own mind, turn it around and imagine what it would be like if you thought either I am smart enough, but more importantly, you know, it's not, that's not even the right metric, right? Do I want to learn? Do I want to just try something without regard to success or failure? One of the things that I say in my book, when people, because people ask me, why did you write this thing? And, you know, one of them is it was really just an experiment to try something I've never tried before without regard to whether it succeeds or fails, right? Without caring about whether it succeeds or fails. You know, among the ironies is like, and here I am kind of publishing a book and yet another, yet another achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do this a lot with my children and try to turn them around because especially kids in high school that deal with social, you know, things like social rejection or, or college application rejection and all that and, and take it so personally. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
and become and, and develop this, you know, can develop a, a you know pessimistic view of the world. And one thing I continue to tell my kids about mindset, right? It's like you have to turn it around in your mind, right? You, when you're when you're getting those rejections wherever and make it you make it personal. You think it's you think it's personal. You think it's permanent. You think it's persistent. When in fact, it's, you know, it, there's a lot of randomness in life and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it's you and sometimes it's somebody else. And, um, you know, you can't, you, you're, you're not the center of the world and the world doesn't revolve around you. And it's just kind of life happening to you, right? And change your mindset, change your point of view to believe that, you know, A, none of this at the end of the day really matters. Um, and B, that there's... Um, uh, there are forces at work that are just utterly outside of your control and how you deal with it is more important than the actual results. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of messages I send to my children, whether they take it or not. I don't know. <laughs> at the end of the day, I, you know, a parent is, <laughs> you know, oftentimes the advice a parent gives is, is, is the least well received. Yeah. Do you ever think that, uh, your kids feel like they have really big shoes to fill given uh, what you've accomplished in your life? Hmm. I do think about it. I try not to rush to conclusions. I don't know how they feel about it. If they're like most kids, they will feel a combination of pride on the one hand and yes, you know, how am I ever going to um, live up to that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, every kid has that. Um, every, and by the way, a lot of kids never outgrow it. You know, they grow up into adults still thinking that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, another lesson I tell my kids, like whatever strategy you had as a kid growing up to get the attention of your parents, you know, you may find later on in life is not a really great strategy for living in whatever job you're in. Hmm. So, you know, if your strategy is, you know, I'm just going to keep quiet and wait for my parents to say what's wrong. Um, you know, when you're in sitting in a boardroom, you know, the strategy of just keeping silent the whole time isn't necessarily the best path to success. Yeah. Um, so you do need to change your strategies over time. But, I, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know how, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know how they're going to respond to it. I assume there's a complexity about it. Um, you know, I wrote the book also in part for them. Um, I didn't think that they would, I wanted them to understand the choices that I made more than anything else. And that's where the book started. Mm-hmm. Um, but I understood that, you know, sometime in, in their 20s and 30s, when men and women begin to ask questions about their parents, I thought this book would be a helpful tool to get them inside my head. And even though they're not in their 20s and 30s yet, um, when they read the book, they kind of they thought, you know, wow, it's like so interesting to see that experience through your eyes because I only experienced it through my eyes. And now I can see it through somebody else's eyes. It's kind of it's such a bizarre view of it. Hmm. And I think that's helpful to them. Yeah, definitely. Now, whether, whether they're going to spend their life on a couch, I don't know. But, <laughs> um, but I'm sure they'll blame me for something. Yeah. Um, so walk me through how you get from Columbia to this really amazing sounding job at Take Two. Like, what were the significant inflection points that led you there? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Um, I don't have the kind of career that you can um, really um, draw a line through. It's not, you <laughs> no, know, anybody who I've interviewed does. A lot of people, I mean, it's just like a lot of people, I feel like a lot of people are very mainstream and they're kind of, um, you know, they move from one job to the next and it always seems to be an improvement. Yeah. That um, has not been um, my experience. In part, I kind of feel like um, I've always had to have strategies to work around the system. For some reason, I never felt like I could just do the mainstream thing. Uh-huh. So, um, went to Columbia, decided I wanted to keep reading. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I went to graduate school in Oxford to study 19th century history, European history. Um, got interested in that, in kind of international relations and international affairs, mostly because of the people that I got to know. Decided I wanted to go back um, to the U.S. and work in international affairs. And so, I went to work for the World Bank in Washington, D.C., 
And that's kind of an interesting story in terms of how I got the job because, um, again, kind of not having to do things my own way. Um, I just uh, had a friend who worked there and I said, look, just get me past security and I'll take it from there and I'll find a job. Wow. And so this woman just sort of like, you know, she, she met me downstairs, let me in. And then I kind of went through my alumni directory, figured out who was working out there. And I just showed up at their office and I said, hey, do you need a research analyst? Um, and then like in two days, I had three job offers. It was amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, all at the World Bank. Um, apropos of kind of going out and making deliberate choices and getting what you want. So I went to the work for, work for the World Bank. And, they, you know, at some point they said, look, if you want to launch a career here, you need a PhD in economics. And I said, it's really not for me. And so I applied to business school and got into Harvard, um, did that for a little while. And then I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And the two pieces of advice that I got from business school, from my business school professors that I remember and that I continue to pass on to um, young professionals today is, A, if you want to be an entrepreneur, I don't think this is the case today because things, things are differently, but they did say that, A, if you want to be an entrepreneur, don't do it now. Go make your mistakes off of somebody else's back um, and, you know, learn a little bit before you go off and be an entrepreneur because you'll be much more successful that way. So go learn from an entrepreneur first. Um, two, if you, you know, the early years in your career are really important learning years are habit forming. And if you form bad habits, those are going to last you the rest of your career. And if you form good habits, those will last you the rest of your career. If you form good habits, the only place you can go is down. But if you form bad habits, it's really hard to go up. So go to a place with really high standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of filter kind of led me to work for Rupert Murdoch at News Corporation. Um, and I had kind of the standard uh, MBA job where you kind of work in corporate for a few years. And then um, from there, they throw you down into one of the operating units and see if you can earn your stripes. And so I did that for a little while and um, then decided it was time to turn on the entrepreneur side. And I started a small company, um, a technology company. I developed a modem. I'm not a technologist, but I'm a tinkerer. Um, back in the day when computers were just coming online. Um, and built that company, um, sold it. Um, you know, it was kind of a sideways investment. I think, that, you know, some... Some investors did well, and some investors went sideways. I didn't lose anybody's money, which I can think of, think of as a victory, um, especially kind of in the time frame which I did it, which is kind of through a, a crash of 2001. Um, and then, you know, one of my board directors, um, who became my partner later, kind of what he was leaving his gig at the time, and we were both looking at deals. And individually, and we thought, wouldn't it be cool to just do it as a pack and start, you know, just do it as a, just as a group. And we formed a company and that became the beginnings of, um, investment. I don't want to bore your, I don't, I don't want to bore your audience with kind of details of all of that, but through, through developing, um, that firm, we launched what was, I'm told the first time done in corporate American history, which is launched a takeover of take Two interactive by voting, the um, the exist by voting a new board into the company just from the floor by a race of hands as opposed to just a proxy fight in the way like a Carl Icahn would do it uh-huh. where it gets nasty and really um, make a lot of people unhappy and we didn't want to do any of that nastiness but we figured out a way to do it without doing the nastiness um, and did it in a way that I think was um, um, you know um, you know I don't know uh, good for. Uh, any number of people that were involved in it that otherwise could have been messy. Yeah. Um, but it was the it was the kind of situation where 
we went. I went into the company. We didn't. We didn't. There was. wasn't. There wasn't a lot of possibility of figuring out the inner workings of the company before that shareholder meeting. And I really it was just one day. I go to a meeting. We win the vote. The general counsel says basically, "Here are the keys. See in the office tomorrow." Mm-hmm. And um, and I just parachuted into being CEO of this company that was troubled and um, executed a turnaround that I think today, you know, if you look back at it, it was a company that was worth less than a billion dollars at the time. Today, mm-hmm. worth I don't know, thirteen, fourteen billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Wow, um, well, that's a lot. You asked yeah. you asked the question. Yep. you have a long answer. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I want to talk uh, quite a bit about the turnaround, and uh, I think to me, probably one of the more interesting lessons here is that. Grand Theft Auto, in my mind, is a behemoth and a masterwork of a creative project. Uh, like every time I played the game, I just thought, how many people did this take? Like, did you bring in comedians to write the scripts? Like, what what is the creative process for something that you know is so big of a video game that it outgrosses movies? What does that look like? Like, how does that even come together? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I think the guys who really make the game, I was running the company, not making the game, but the guys who make the guys who make the game, um, uh, would appreciate it if I, um, you know, didn't kind of, um, uh, speak outside of turn or kind of sure. give away anything about the inner, inner workings of the company. So yeah. with, with respect, I'm going to kind of defer the question. Okay. Fair um, enough. other than to say, um, the people who make that game are some of the most creative people I've ever worked with. Yeah. Um, and these things are super complex, um, super creative, right. In terms of what goes into storyline and gameplay and computer graphics and the list goes on and on as opposed to sort of say, you know, recording a song in the studio. Right. Um, the, the, both the creative element of it, but just the management of the number of people uh-huh. to put together a project like that is a very sophisticated process. And if you look at the history of video games, I mean, it's really interesting, especially when you compare it to um, other entertainment genres and other sectors. Mm-hmm. You can see how, as the complexity moved from having two guys in the garage in the early days of video games to running massive teams to develop massive projects, how um, uh, development teams that aren't able to make that transitions just fall away. And while you could create a great video game with two guys in the garage, there are lots of people that can do that. There aren't a lot of people that can manage teams to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of everything that goes into it, just as you said, you know, the music, the graphics, the, the writing, the, um, the storyline, the, the um, creative suspense that you build into these games. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of creative, creative effort that goes into it. It's not easy by any means, and certainly yeah. nothing has achieved the success of Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. Um, but they've done they've done you know nothing but respect for the kind of work that those guys do. Right. Guys and gals. What did you notice uh, in terms of habits and personality traits of you know people who are highly creative and highly accomplished in this process? Like the people who really kind of stood out. Um, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know that there is a personality trait. I've seen, um, I've seen all sorts of different personality traits in the creative businesses that I've been involved with anywhere from, you know, super disciplined to super creative and, um, um, you know, people come up with a million ideas in a second and people who kind of work through a process, people who are 
you know, very much creatively driven. And there are others that are kind of iteratively driven. It's like, let's try something, let's fix it, try it. I mean, as, you know, especially now when games are online as opposed to just a box set that's shipped, mm-hmm. you have the ability to kind of change it in real time. Yeah. So there are a lot of, a lot of folks that do that. And um, there are any number of, it's like, you know, it's like, there are any number of entrepreneur, any number of entrepreneur personalities or any number of creative personalities. I don't think there is any one personality that makes that can be predicted for, you know, super creative output. Yeah. There is, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I could answer the question. I just think there are too many, very too many things going on. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah. What enables the kind of turnaround that causes you to take a company from being worth a billion dollars to 13 billion? How does that happen? Uh, you know, the initial stages of a turnaround are is not rocket science. If you have the right elements in there, in the sense that you know you need to cut costs, you need to focus on the core. Very often, their company is doing too many things. You got to cut out kind of the things that are are not the number one, fo- the number one or number two focus of what the company should be. I mean, you lay out a, a positioning and strategy. Um, and then, so kind of step number one is really reducing costs to get a business in balance. Oftentimes, a turnaround involves a company that is losing money. Um, so you need to do that, and you need to make sure that you're capitalized for the effort. And um, um, and every situation is different. So I don't want to minimize the amount of um, hard work there isn't going into that. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, you know, A, it's cost reduction exercise, and then B, it's a growth exercise. And oftentimes, the cost reduction exercise is the easier part. Mm -hmm. And then you got to figure out how to grow the the business. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a number of specific issues that we needed to deal with at Take-Two. But, you know, a turnaround, a video game, you know, I paint as kind of a creative outlet now. And all of this to me is, at the end of the day, it's problem solving. Mm-hmm. Some problems are more complex than others. Um, you need to know, where you, you need to understand what you, where, where your destination point is, right? You need a kind of a, a focal point on what you're shooting for and develop a plan. And there are lots of course corrections between now and then. Um, but all of it is creative problem solving. And when you're dealing with an organization of 2,000 people or, or more, or you kind of just you and a canvas at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's about problem solving. Mm-hmm. And I think you need um, any number of skills to do it. But more importantly than that, you need a team around you that um, can help. I'm a big believer. I use, you know, we have this um, thing in our culture of this Superman or Superwoman um, mentality or um, belief that, you know, you know, I don't know, Steve Jobs or whomever right. who kind of is just this leader and this visionary. And Steve Jobs may be an exception. I have found in actuality, there may be a front man or a front woman in front of all this, but there are teams of very talented people all around trying to make this happen. Um, and I'm a big believer, not only that that's the reality, you know, in, in doing that and, um, uh, and empowering people, but also you know, we talked earlier about, you know, the stories that people tell in their own mind, giving, um, giving people the, the, the latitude to think in that way, right? Not having to believe that, you know, I got to kill it. I got to crush it. It's just all me because it's all depending on me. And it's just, it's just not the case, right? You need, you need people around you. You need help. And the best way to do that is to hire the best people um, to do whatever task you're looking to do. Um, 
but you uh, you know the, this this notion that you know there's only one person that can solve the world's problems is a mistake mm-hmm. and um, and so I have found in, in the stuff that I in the, in the work that I have done that um, having great people on the team is important and the most important thing a leader can do is deciding who's on the bus and who's off the bus yeah. and once you've decided who's on the bus on the bus and you have great people on the bus you can you can go to, you can take that bus and go great places hmm. you left uh, at what sounded like the, the height of your career what prompted that decision well, first of all, nobody knows what the height is until you're looking in the rearview mirror. So we don't know, yeah. you know, what the what, what the height is. In fact, I think I'm, I, you know, I kind of, um, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now, and I have no idea whether this is higher or lower than that point, and um, and I don't really care, frankly. Um, and there were a lot of things that drove the decision, um, but the seminal one that I recall is realizing how much uh, it took out of me personally to orchestrate all of that. And I had circled the globe for, you know, I don't know, four years kind of um, and devoted myself um, to achieving. And I really, really leaned into the machine and gave it all I had. Um, and I remember walking into walking home one day and my oldest son was um, barricaded inside his room doing his homework. I opened, cracked his door open and uh, said hello to him. He just kind of gave me a grunt. And then we had dinner together and then he kind of grunted some more at dinner. And um, I don't know, I just had this realization. It's like, he's going to high school. This is just going to get worse. Um, and then he's going to go to college. And he'll be gone. And meantime, I will be, I'll have circled the globe another dozen times. And, um, and then the moment will have passed, right? And then it's never, and it's never coming back, never. And A, I kind of have this, this now or never moment, this now or never realization. Um, and B, I kind of thought, you know, this is where it happens, right? This is where um, men become the fathers and husbands they never meant to, to be, right? You get carried away with your career. You get carried away with whatever it is that's driving your career. And, um, and you forget the relationships that matter the most. And you forget what it's really all about. And I just thought that um, I had a moment in time. I had achieved a certain amount of success. No, not the... I mean, uh, you know, I plan- I, there was plenty more that I wanted to do with my career. But I kind of wondered, you know, what would it be like if I just, you know, borrowed some time from my retirement and took it now while I can enjoy it with my kids um, and my wife? And, you know, what would that be like? And I began to imagine it. I began to research, you know, people have done that before and all that stuff. And that kind of led me down a path. But there was this moment of realization that if I don't take charge of it, I'm just going to get carried away with the urgencies of working home. And uh, and I don't want to look back and regret it. And I didn't want my kids to think of their father as a guy who achieved success, but like had no relationship with. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be that guy. So I made a choice. Mm. Um, so I know you, you spent uh, about a year in Bali, which you write about extensively in the book. Uh, I'm wondering how it's made you a different leader. Uh, after you've come back from that experience and having gone through this experience? How has it changed the way that you lead people? Um, you know, my answer is not too much different than the way, you know, I parent. Um, I have, um, 
you know, I, I have this odd combination of being very goal oriented and being very process oriented and very being very people oriented. Um, and I'm I'm um, I still am interested in what's going on in people's heads, and I'm really interested in mindset. All all kind of mapping against you know what are the goals we're trying to achieve. So um, I still uh, you know what I what I preach a lot not preach, preach is the wrong word. What I believe a lot in businesses generally as they grow is focus, 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 focus on what your goals are, focus on what you're trying to achieve. Um, and I believe that you need the right team to get to where you want to, to get to where you want to go. And I kind of manage in that way. Um, and I, in terms of differences from where I was before, I have a much greater appreciation for well-being of people. Um, and the people around me. I mean, we talked about physical fitness and also, but also kind of um, mental fitness. And so today, kind of, you know, I meditate daily. Um, I do a lot of yoga. I kind of get centered. Um, I work through management issues and um, and business issues um, more by res- more by responding than by reacting. Um, I kind of feel like I've created a little bit of space in terms of, um, you know, what the world is throwing my way and the way I respond to it. And that space to kind of throw things down kind of feels like I do these little matrix moves every now and then. Mm-hmm. And that really um, uh, helps me feel more in control of the situation to the extent, you know, so every now and then relationships, um, situations are uncontrollable. But I do take that moment to... Um, you know, respond as opposed to react. It's a subtle difference. It may not sound like very much, but it does feel like a big difference in my own mind. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I want to finish with uh, two last pieces of this, and this is something that you and I were talking about briefly before we officially hit record here. Uh, you know, you said to yourself that you published one of the most violent video games on the planet, and yet you followed it up by writing about uh, writing a book about peace and, and love, uh, which, you know, like you said, your career is full of paradoxes, and I'm curious how you resolve that paradox. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't think it needs to be resolved, honestly. Sure. You know, in addition to what you said about Grand Theft Auto, um, it is also, as you know, um, one of the most creative products out there in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's art. It's gritty art, um, but art, um, but art, and um, and all you need to do is look at sales data to know how mainstream it actually is. <laughs> right. um, and you know, when I talk to um, parents and kids about it. Or I used to talk to parents and kids about it. Yeah. I'd get two reactions, which is like one, one from the people that are opposed to it, which is like, you know, what are we teaching our kids? Right. And the other is from the kids themselves. And they look at me, it's like, you know, this is just a video game, right? You know, this is like not real, right? Yeah. And you know, I <laughs> just get um, lost in the, in the, um, in, in the dialogue sometimes. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like, um, it's a fantasy world and it's a hugely creative one at that. And so I don't, you know, I know on paper it looks like a paradox, but in reality, I don't see it that way at all. I kind of feel like it's really a super creative enterprise, mm-hmm. um, a super creative franchise. And to me, that should be celebrated. That's, I mean, nothing more than that. I mean, nothing less than that it should be celebrated. 
You know, it, it's interesting because I think we have two uh, sort of <clears throat> really weird narratives about video games. Either you're a slob who plays video games and you're out of shape. But I think on the flip side of that, you have you know people like Jane McGonigal who talk about the the you know positive impact that gaming has had on people. Um, you know, from your vantage point, what have you seen uh, as positive impacts that overall video games have had on kids? You know, I really, I, you know, I don't, you know, I think to engage in that dialogue. Sure. Um, kind of misses the point, okay, right? I don't think, enough. you know, whether it's positive impact or negative impact, it's not really the point. I mean, do movies have a positive impact or negative impact? I mean, I mean, when you talk about that, yeah. You lose the concept of what that movie was about, what that television show was about, and the experience that you have by getting into it, and the, the suspension of disbelief that you get have by getting into it, mm-hmm. and, and forget about what you get out of it, what you don't, the utility of it, mm-hmm. in terms of just the the ability to escape and be entertained and be you know and interact with a community. All of that is what the game is about. The game is not about, in my opinion, the game is right. not about you know. The net, you know, the net positive, the net negative that you get out of it, as yeah. opposed to what it what it is fundamentally. What is the essence of that game, and that essence of the game? If you're playing, if you're playing it, and you get enjoyment out of it, I think we don't need to go any further than that. Well, as somebody who plays sports video games and doesn't watch sports at all, I would completely agree. Right, we're, we're good. We're on the same page. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, this has been really interesting. Uh, so I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all sure. our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, what do I think it is that makes you know? I, you know, the truth is, I think first of all that everybody has something unmistakable about them, um, and that we all have a responsibility to share what's unmistakable about us with the rest of the world and not to do that. Not only punishes yourself, but punishes the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, everybody's got something unmistakable about them and has their own, um, uh, their own contributions to make. And, uh, uh, so that's kind of my overarching answer that there is no one unmistakable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, but what is, necessary is the freedom and the mindset to share that and allow it to be known in the world. And even if it's subject to criticism, but let it be known. And because, you know, you're never going to please everybody. Um, but you know, but the worst thing to the world is just to kind of keep it inside and not share it. Awesome. Well, uh, this has been really, really cool and interesting, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with the listeners. Um, where can Great. people find out more about you, your book, and your work? Um, my book is available on um, everywhere you can um, find books on the internet and in bookstores um, and in airports. Um, and in terms of uh, uh, me personally, I have a website called benfetterauthor.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.